Educators are trusted members of their communities. They have the skill sets to determine what's real and what isn't in information. They have the superpower of understanding how information fits into their curricula. If they have the will to do this work, they have the ways. And we feel like, if anything, it's educators' jobs to save the world right now in so much as this is a huge issue that's affecting every major problem that we're facing. That's Jennifer Lagarde, a librarian, author, and national leader in leveraging technology to help children and youth develop authentic reading lives and discern fact from fiction in the information they consume. In addition to teaching skills related to the traditional sense of the word literacy, educators are called to address other types of literacy, such as digital literacy, media literacy, and information literacy, all of which are associated with some common and critical skill sets necessary to sift through, detect, and manage misinformation, or what is commonly referred to as fake news. Jennifer Lagarde expands on this topic next on the Pacific Education Pulse podcast. Welcome to the Pacific Education Pulse podcast, also known as Pep Talk, the show that keeps your finger on the pulse of education. Each episode brings you inspiring and cutting edge information through interviews with movers and shakers who are positively impacting the field of education in Hawaii and beyond. Here's your host, Dr. Hugh Dunn. Aloha, I'm Hugh Dunn. This pep talk show is brought to you by the Pacific Literacy Consortium, administered within the Curriculum Research and Development Group. Today's show features Jennifer Lagarde, co-author of the book Fact Versus Fiction, Teaching Critical Thinking Skills in the Age of Fake News. With over 20 years of experience in education as a classroom teacher, librarian, and state-level leader, Jennifer has been recognized by the New York Times, the American Association of School Librarians, and the Carnegie Foundation. She's also the author of the award-winning blog, The Adventures of Library Girl, and currently works with pre-service librarians at Rutgers University. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me, Hugh. I'm excited about our conversation. Well, I'm excited to talk with you about the thought-provoking and practical book that you co-authored with Darren Hudgens. The book is titled Fact Versus Fiction, Teaching Critical Thinking Skills in the Age of Fake News, and it's published by the International Society for Technology Education. So what motivated you and your co-author, Darren Hudgens, to write Fact Versus Fiction? Well, gosh, I mean, I think for us, it was just what we were seeing going on in the world at the time in terms of how information that had been created specifically to manipulate or even to monetize uh, consumers was being used to, uh, people were using that misinformation to make really critical and important decisions about their lives, about their relationships, about our democracy, about how we interact with each other, about our health. All of that was influencing us in such profound and often negative ways that Darren and I just felt like, gosh, well, we can sit around and grumble about it. We can add to the information stream on social media about how it's a problem, or we can do something about it. And you couple that with just the motivation of wanting to affect what we saw as one of the most pressing problems facing us as human beings, not just as Americans, but as human beings on this planet. Couple that with what we were seeing in schools in terms terms of information literacy practice that still very much looked like it was the year 2000 as opposed to the year 2016. And that's what made Darren and I feel like this book was necessary. And we devoted two years to trying to get it done. And we're really proud of it, but it's only really the beginning of our work. Well, you should be. It's a, it's a great book, very engaging. And it was interesting, in, in your book, you mentioned that in 2016, Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was post-truth. What is post-truth? Well, I sort of think about post-truth in the context of a, of a term known as the liar's paradox, which is the idea that if everything can be false, then nothing can be true, which is kind of like 
a place where a lot of information consumers find ourselves, where we're sort of look at the information that's out there and think, oh my gosh, everything is untrue in some way. So therefore, there's no truth out there to be had. You know, we throw up our hands in exasperation and, uh, and feel, and can feel very, very helpless when it comes to navigating what's real and what isn't. And so this idea of we're living in this world where truth doesn't really matter and truth is hard to find, you know, what can we as educators do to navigate that world? Number one, is it really true? Is that really true? And number two, what can we do as educators to navigate the world and to prepare our students for a world like that? So is this fake news? Is it a byproduct of our post-truth era or has this phenomenon been around for a while? Well, first of all, even though it's in the title of our book, I have to say I steer clear of using the term fake news because okay. I, well, I mean, it's just become almost like a political football, that term. It's a very easy and frankly lazy way for us to disparage something that we don't believe in or that doesn't confirm our beliefs. Like, for example, if you say something that I just find um, unbelievable or doesn't confirm my beliefs, and I can just label that as fake news and disparage uh, whoever is saying it, right? So we try to be more specific, and that's something that we encourage in the book, is we try to use more specific language around false narratives like is it misinformation is it propaganda is it satire is it a hoax you know what really is the the narrative or the elements of the information that should make us suspicious rather than just using the term fake news because it's super polarizing so having said that it absolutely is not a new phenomenon. As long as there has been a media and there has been um, a populace to, who could be influenced by it, there have been people who have used the media to try to manipulate and influence. It, the difference now is that our tools just enable us to do that so much more quickly. We live in a world where we have these tools that allow information to travel at the speed of light. So a false narrative can travel so quickly, whereas back in the day when people like Benjamin Franklin or Woodrow Wilson were using the media to manipulate or influence, it took months and months and months or even years to get the job done. It was a long game. It's not a long game now. In the introduction of Fact versus Fiction, you set the stage for your book by Juxtaposing two events in recent history, the first is the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City in April 1995, and the second is the devastating 7.1 magnitude earthquake that struck Mexico City in September 2017. Comparing the 1995 and 2017 events, how did they differ in terms of the rate at which and the means through which information was shared? Well, the Oklahoma City bombing, of course, occurred pre-internet days, or at least before we all had access to internet at our home or in our pockets on a smart device, whereas the um, earthquake in Mexico City occurred when social media was available. The things that those two events have in common that I think are important for news to consumers to think about is the emotional reaction and sort of community building that happened when the events occurred. Both events involved people in peril. They involved um, an unknown or difficult to deal with adversary, whether we're talking about terrorism or we're talking about a national, a natural disaster. They both involved uh, consumers waiting for and hungry for new information to happen in real time, waiting for new information, being glued to their TVs or their phones. And both the folks who were producing news and information about those events at both times capitalize on that emotional connection we have to news in order to get their source to be the one that we watch and listen to. Back in 1997, we didn't have as many options 
But as we talk about in the book, I can remember standing in front of the TV um, at a local restaurant with a hundred other people that I didn't know who just happened to go in there and we were suddenly glued to this news event and we were bonded to it because it was so emotional. It was harrowing. We were living in this moment together, um, a moment that we would never forget. When the Mexico City earthquake happened, there was a false story that spread on social media about a young child named Frida being trapped in the rubble. And a hashtag was created around that. And suddenly, in the exact same way that the hundred or so people in the restaurant in 1997 with me were connected through our being glued to this story, millions of people were connected by being glued to the Frida story. So it illustrates this really important connection between news and emotion. And the tools that we have now allow news creators, information creators, to harness and use that emotion at a more exponential rate. In terms of the 1995 event, people who wanted to follow the story of the bombing and its aftermath they didn't have a choice but to stay glued to their televisions, to their radios, and they waited for the news to be filtered through the media before it was disseminated to the public. And then you mentioned that they waited for these broadcast-sized chunks, as opposed to in 2017, in that deadly earthquake, people following that event were instantly updated in real time through traditional media and social media outlets. And you mentioned that hashtag, that hashtag Frida Sophia. And it's interesting because the Mexicans and others on social media around the world were, like you said, they were captivated by the story of this earthquake victim, her name being Frida Sofia, presumably, whose uncertain fate inspired that hashtag, hashtag Frida Sofia, and it trended worldwide. And in short, this heartfelt story proved to be false. And as it turned out, there was never a girl trapped in the rubble. Frida Sofia never existed. However, a lot of what trended with the hashtag was true. There was an earthquake, like you said. There was a collapsed yeah. school. There were children fatally trapped in the rubble. And the name Frida was significant to the event in that it was the name of one of the military rescue dogs. Right. So there was a recipe there for this false narrative to engender. And it's neat how you use that story to set up the rest of the book. It's so funny because Darren and I don't live in the same town. We live several hundred miles apart. Um, he lives in Oregon and I live in Washington, but I had traveled down to Portland. He met me there for us to have dinner and to talk about this book. And I can remember before we even got out of the car at the restaurant, he pulled open his phone and said, I need to tell you about this story about this uh, earthquake and Frida. And he was telling me the story and I was looking up stuff on my phone. And we both said, this is what has to start the book. This is the story. Somehow we need to use this to lay the foundation for why false narratives work and what some of the sort of key ingredients to creating a viral, effective, false story are. People just like you are captivated by it in the same way that the world was when it actually took place. Right. And collectively, we get caught up in these types of trending narratives that are misleading. And you mentioned it, it's a it's false narrative or like in your title, fake news, mm -hmm. which are a result of either it's intentional or unintentional errors. Why do people fall for stories that turn out to be false? Well, Darren and I believe one of the things that's sorely missing from our educational programs around information literacy is the inextricable link between being able to analyze information and social and emotional learning. Whether we're talking about the Oklahoma City bombing that occurred 20 plus years ago, or we're talking about the earthquake from 2017, or a litany of other stories in between, the reason why those stories work is because they activate or trigger an emotion or a bias. One of the things that we feel is so um, critical when it comes to thinking about information is to first look at it through how the information makes us feel. Does this information make us afraid? 
Does it make us outraged? Does it make us feel specific things about groups of people who are referenced in it? Do, and even if it isn't successful in triggering an emotion for us, can we recognize where there is um, a design, an attempt to trigger that emotion? Because if an emotional response is triggered, then that becomes the driver for us as information consumers in terms of what we do next. Clicks are the new currency. And so in that environment, whether we're talking about a troll or we're talking about a trained journalist, they have to create content content that puts us into an emotional state when we consume it. Because when emotion takes over, we are far more likely to click like and share and do it in a way that often contains our own emotional emotion with it. Like if we see something that makes us feel outraged, we don't just click retweet. We click retweet with our emotion to go with it. Oh my gosh, this is outrageous. This shouldn't stand. And then all of our friends and family, because they trust us, especially as educators, do the same. So they rely on this emotional connection and that this emotional response. And that's why it's so easy to fall prey to this, because it is um, designed to trigger a base level response. We're all smart enough if we dig deeply enough to figure out who the source is, to trace information back to um, how it is monetized, etc. We are able to triangulate and do all the things that have always been strategies around information literacy, but we're not able to do that when our emotional side of our brain has taken over. So we feel like, gosh, it's just so important for us to start teaching this in a way that helps kids recognize those triggers so that we can press pause and navigate our emotional response before we try to evaluate the information. Yes, and oftentimes we search for ways to discredit facts while clinging to our personal narratives. And we have this tendency to cherry pick data and an innate desire for an easy answer, which makes it even more fertile ground for fake news. Yeah, and I think another component that adds to that is that our, our brains are actually wired to look for information that proves us right. You know, when we are in a situation in which we understand the world around us and what we think to be true about the world around us is true, then that's a situation in which we feel safer, um, in which we feel more protected. And so our brain naturally looks for information that confirms what we already believe. Our brains lean towards confirmation, towards truths. And so uh, we have to be careful. We have to recognize with that within ourselves so that we can actually look at information and data in particular in a little more neutral way and not just consider the data that confirms what we already believe as opposed to the data that may conflict with it. In reference to the Frida story, what tactics were used to create that false narrative? Well, Frida is a very interesting story because we've never been able to trace the false story back to a single source. It looks like when you look at how all of that played out, that it was an, a really interesting and complex series of events that led to a false narrative that captivated the world. But if you look at what the end result was, you can see some very clear components that create or just the right ingredients for creating a false narrative that the entire world can believe. First and foremost, the emotional connection that the world felt to the information. The idea that this little girl was trapped beneath the rubble in this massive earthquake was emotionally triggering for the viewers and for those who were watching from all around the world. That's the first thing. The other piece of it is that there were factual elements sprinkled into the story. We knew that it was a real earthquake. We knew some of the players that were listed in the story, the officials on the ground were real officials that were there on site. The events in terms of how they played out in the timeline of the earthquake itself coincided with and made 
sense in the context of Frida's story. So her story aligned with the events of the earthquake. Then you couple that with the way that it played out on social media, the hashtag being created, the story being picked up by news outlets that we would uh, deem as legitimate or that many people would automatically trust because they're a source that they often go to. It's not just some random person on Twitter who is tweeting about Frida. It's sources like NPR. It's sources like, you know, uh, trained journalistic outlets, the New York Times, etc. Though be, those add a level of credibility to the story. So when you have all of those things, then coupled with your friends and the people you trust personally repeating the narrative, then that's the perfect recipe for an exponential viral story that turns out not to be true at all. So these purveyors of false news, they do have strategies. You mentioned there's a psychology behind fake news, specifically confirmation bias and implicit bias. Can you touch upon those? Yes. One of the most fascinating and frustrating bits of information that we came across while we were researching um, this book was the story of a person in Eastern Europe who is called in the story that we share in the book, uh, his pseudonym is Dimitri. And he lives in Macedonia and his entire job, what he does for a living is to create false news stories for Americans. He's hired by people to create false stories that will influence Americans politically. And that particular story is one that Darren and I use a lot in workshops with educators, and it always elicits a very strong response. But what's fascinating is that when Dimitri talks about his strategies for creating false news stories, they're the same as what we saw in the Frida story from the very beginning of the book. He looks to create an emotional response. He shares the narratives that he creates within groups who will already believe things that are similar to that. He says in his video interview, if people love water, you give them water. If they love wine, you give them wine. It's very simple. You confirm what they already believe. And if what you're saying in your false story confirms their existing biases, they won't dig any deeper. They're not going to do the extra work of looking for facts to prove or disprove it. So it's fascinating to us that this emotion, this confirmation bias, this being very strategic in terms of where you share those narratives, both of those things played into both stories or all of those things played into both stories. And the reason they work then falls back to those concepts that you were talking about, like confirmation bias, which is this idea that just as human beings, our brain is wired to seek information that proves us right. Not only when I'm told that I'm right about something, either literally by someone else, they say, you're right. Or I find information that says that to me, like, yes, I knew that. Here's some information to prove what I think is true is actually right. Chemicals and endorphins are released in our brain as a pleasure response. So that's pleasurable, first of all. But second of all, it adds to the feeling that we have a firm grasp and understanding of the world around us. When we feel like we understand the world and what we believe is right, we feel safer, we feel more secure. And that feeling allows our brain then to categorize future information that we happen to come in contact with very, very easily. We're allowed, our brain is then allowed to sort it into the containers of what we already know to know to be true and not true based on these confirmation biases um, very quickly and efficiently, which frees our brains up then to do other work that's a little bit more challenging. If we don't understand the natural world, then our brains have to do more work to analyze every piece of information that we come in contact with, which then puts us in a position of feeling less secure and more vulnerable. So 
neurologically, we're set up to believe these things. We really have to, to pardon the phrase, be smarter than our brains. We have to recognize that we are, our brains are wired in this way. And if we feel um, a strong emotional reaction, even if that's positive, even if it's a confirmation of what we already know, if we feel that way in response to information, that should be a red flag. That's the time where we should press pause and say, hmm, I wonder why that is. It's time for me to dig a little bit deeper. I like that analogy, press pause and be aware of these biases. I want to go back to that notion of uh, true or false. You and Darren Hudgens mentioned that strictly categorizing information into one of two categories denies subtleties within false narratives and oversimplifies a carefully crafted attempt to influence opinion. One of the consequences of information uh, being so readily available and to a large degree, at least in the Western world, democratized in so much as we all, um, to a certain and large degree, have access to the same information in ways that are free. Information is in the Western world for, to a large degree democratized. There's absolutely exceptions to that that are important to think about. But just speaking generally and painting a broad brush, one of the consequences of that and the fact that it has bred this new industry of false narratives is that there's also, it's also created another sort of cottage industry of fact checkers. That is to say, people who make their living going through all this information and fact checking and then labeling it for us. You know, I'm thinking about Snopes or PolitiFact or lots of other websites that you can go to and look up stories to see um, if they are true or if they are false. People who are create false narratives know and understand that these fact checkers exist. And so one of the things that they don't want is for a story to be labeled entirely false. So one strategy because of the fact checkers and also because it's better able to then fool us as consumers is to sprinkle in um, both facts with false information or to use what is uh, legitimate data, but to present it in a way that is misleading. This just is makes it such that it's very difficult and really inaccurate to look at any one news story and label it as entirely true or entirely false. There's nuances to that. And as consumers, that's harder work. You know, it's harder work for me to be able to say, well, this isn't entirely false, but there's parts of it that are. And yet that's the position we find ourselves in. That's part of what makes this work a challenge, I think, for educators, because um, there's often not a right answer. Oftentimes there's lots of shades of gray in there. And while that's harder, because in some ways it's a challenge to assess student evaluation of information like that. It's also critically, critically important that we do that work so that kids are really prepared to evaluate that kind of information in the real world when frankly research counts more. You know, like research, it has higher stakes for kids when they're doing it on their own, when they're looking up information about how diseases are transmitted or they're looking up information about what to do if they're in an abusive situation or, you know, information that has higher stakes. We want to make sure that we've prepared them to do, to apply those same protocols and tests then um, as when they're doing it for a grade, when frankly, the stakes are a lot lower. Right. And it's not an easy task, but it's a very important task. You mentioned that educators need to help equip students to spot suspect information or sniff out fake news and to even understand propaganda, disinformation, clickbait, satire. And those are things that you and Hudgens address in your book. I also want to mention that while millions of us remain cooped up in our homes under lockdown restrictions, we come across on Facebook, YouTube, and elsewhere a range of bogus stories and half-baked COVID-19 conspiracy theories that have gained considerable global momentum. Can you think of some examples where the nuances of fake news that you outline in your book would apply in light of the current COVID-19 situation? 
I'm so glad you asked me this question because this relates to some of the work that Darren and I are currently doing to try to show how information and news literacy can be applied to the current events and current landscape that we're living in. We've recently written a series of articles and we're continuing to do that for School Library Journal that unpacks way the, ways that teachers can approach information and news literacy given our current situation of remote learning and a pandemic, which my goodness, I mean, who would have predicted that we'd all be doing this? But one of our articles focuses on how memes, you know, those little bite-sized images, funny little uh, right. snippets that we send to one another in our emails, our texts, etc., how those are being used quite successfully to spread xenophobia around COVID-19 and to and also by white supremacist groups who've been using them to try to recruit young white males to their cause. And we think that's important because memes are a huge source of information for young people. And yet, they are largely not included in information literacy instruction in schools. Darren and I ran across a recent study that was done by the Pacific News Literacy um, Institute where they talked to young people about where they get information. And one surprising outcome from that study, at least for us, was that many um, young people use and think of memes as sources of news. Some of them don't think the meme itself is a news source, but repeated memes that they see on social media or being sent back and forth of their by their friends act to them almost like a lighthouse in the sea of information. Like if I'm seeing this meme over and over again, well, gosh, that's a piece of information I should go look for more information about. If that meme is mm. being repeated, then that's news. That's a lighthouse for me amongst this huge, this sea of information. And of course, depending on how the information is presented in the meme itself, that's going to influence their searching, right? For information right. about that topic. So Darren and I, in this article, we unpack and try to apply some of the strategies for um, doing a close reading of information and analyzing news for false narratives to memes. And we suggest you, there's all sorts of digital tools that you can do for this. But if you start with some of these basic questions of A, how does this meme make me feel? What's the feelings that are evoked from it? B, does this meme make me feel something towards other people? For example, one of the memes that we unpacked in our article was one that shows uh, it's just a simple picture of someone popping bubbles in bubble wrap. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. You know how when you get bubble wrap and right. the meme says, don't pop any bubble, bubble wrap now. It comes from China and the air inside it is infected with the Chinese virus. Oh, boy. Okay? So then, you know, which you and I look at that and think that's crazy. But in a time when we're all afraid, we're all trapped at home, information about this thing is constantly changing, then asking yourself questions like, does this trigger my fear? Does it make me feel like feel something specific towards people of Asian descent? Who would want me to feel that way? Those are all questions that can help raise red flags in terms of whether or not that information is suspicious. Memes are an interesting animal when it comes to information because they're almost always untraceable. You can't, very rarely can you go back and find the original source. So you have to just use the information in the meme itself and about the people who are sharing it. So once you've applied that lens of first, what's my emotional response to this here, uh, to this meme, then you can start looking at things like, where have I seen it shared? Or do the other people who are sharing this have some kind of bias or agenda that should make me be suspicious? If I can't find the original source of it, with which a meme you probably won't, 
that in itself is a red flag. So there are ways to apply these this criteria um, to even information sources like memes, which we again don't often think about as news, but that young people often cling to as like these sort of flashlights in the dark, these lighthouses to lead them to other information. In their book, Lagarde and Hudgens highlight a number of popular media literacy tools and checklists that educators have used to help students evaluate the overwhelming digital information at their fingertips. However, Jennifer emphasizes that these methods and protocols embedded in clever mnemonic devices such as the CRAP test developed by librarians at the Miriam Library of California State University are necessary but not sufficient in this current digital landscape. She shares some complementary strategies and addresses some common challenges facing educators. Darren and I are actually working on a second book now, which is tentatively called uh, Lesson Plans for Creating Digital Detectives. And we're really um, intrigued by this idea of the digital detective and the detective work that information consumers of all ages have to do now in order to be able to analyze information. And so I bring that up in the context of the crap test because one of the things that Darren and I thought about in the first book um, consistently was if we've had things like these protocols, like the crap test or like the cars um, checklist or the sift checklist, there's hundreds of these here, these just these mnemonic devices, these protocols that help kids remember, I should be looking for credibility. I should be looking for the author. You know, there's just a mm -hmm. mnemonic device. If we've ha we've had some of these for decades. If those are so great, then why aren't they working, right? If those protocols right. are really awesome, why are we in this situation? And Darren and I have come to the conclusion that those protocols are still really valuable. They are just, they shouldn't be the first and last step in what we do around information literacy in schools. And in far too many cases, that's what we see. So we've developed these sort of four steps in terms of analyzing information in which those protocols are a part. The first step, we're calling them our detective lenses. So the first lens that a digital detective should look through when they're analyzing information is the triggers, the emotional triggers that the information might cause in us. The second lens has to do with access. We need to think long and hard about the device that we're accessing the information on because that plays a role in how readily available additional information about the source is. For example, if I'm looking at an article from the New York Times on COVID-19 on my laptop, that tool gives me very quick access to the URL to the author, to the date it was published, et cetera. I can very quickly on the home screen without digging any further, find some of the information that some of the protocols we've talked about before ask us to. But if I'm looking at that information on my phone through an app, like say Instagram, that doesn't tell me right away anything. I certainly don't get a URL. It doesn't tell me who the author is. It might tell me the source, but not the author. It doesn't tell me readily the date it was published. And because it also includes things like likes and comments, it's very easy for me to be influenced by the popularity of the article on social media versus on a browser. So that access point is important. In schools, when Darren and I visit schools to talk about information literacy, 99.9% .9 of information literacy instruction is done on a laptop, laptop or a desktop. But here's what we know to be true. Information from the Pew Research Center has showed us that well over uh, 90% of Americans have access to a mobile phone in their home. And when news consumers are surveyed, 
even the oldest demographic, people that we don't think about as necessarily being tech savvy, even they report at, at about a rate of 50% that they get the vast majority of their information on a mobile device and not on a desktop or laptop. So we have to really be thinking about that access point and how it affects our ability to be able to discern or to locate information that'll help us um, determine credibility. So the first lens is triggers, the second lens is access. The third lens then is forensics, which then we're talking about these protocols that you mentioned, like the crap test, the cars checklist, etc. Because once you have managed your emotional response and considered how the device you're accessing it on limits your ability to find the forensics, then you can start looking for things like the author and the publication date and triangulation, et cetera. And then our last lens has to do with motivation and considering what kind of person might be motivated to create this story, whether it is false or it turns out to be true. Who, who would be the suspect in this case? If we think about each information, each, every bit of information we consume is sort of a case to be solved by the detective, then who are the suspects in this case? So those, those are the, that's the, the four lenses that we are now encouraging people to look through, look at information through and, What's important in terms of your question is that those protocols, those forensics are just a piece of it. Part of it. We okay. think, yeah, we think that those protocols are still valuable, but only in the context of these other steps. I don't think they hold up anymore all by themselves. In your work with educators who are at the front lines of this battle, I know they have some concerns surrounding the topic of fake news. And how do you address these concerns? Well, I mean, I, I, it depends on the age of the kids, first of all. You know, um, when we think about, quote, fake news or false narratives, our minds almost automatically go to politics and to stories that may contain information that especially younger kids just might developmentally not be ready for. So for younger kids, I think there's lots and lots of stories out there that we can still apply these lenses to. For example, we use a story that was popular and went viral on Instagram a couple years ago about this supposed six foot dog and this guy who owned this six foot dog and the dog suffered from this disease, etc. And we use this story with fourth and fifth graders all the time and they get to apply the four lenses to it and all four lenses work um, because the emotions that are triggered are absolutely are positive are about curiosity gosh you have no idea how many of these kids wish they had a six foot dog you know all of that stuff so we want to believe that that story is true because it's kind of magical and then also we can apply the access are we you know if we looking at it on an ipad versus on the web browser. Um, how is that different? And then, of course, we can look at the forensics and, and then the motives. So the stories don't have to be political or uncomfortable or um, even uh, emotionally draining for either the adults or the kids in order for us to start having these conversations with kids about information. Because here's what I know to be true about kids of all ages. They're consuming information. It, if you walk up to kids and say, hey, where do you get your news? They look at you like you have three heads and say, I don't watch the news. But if you ask them if they know about a current event, they know about it. And then when you dig a little deeper and ask them how they found out, oh, it was on Snapchat. Oh, I heard my dad talking about it. They're consuming information. So it's never too young to start thinking about uh, even just modeling or in a way like I talked about with the six foot dog, starting to apply uh, these strategies to information consumption in school. But as kids get older, when they get into especially high school, I think there's ways to touch on far more serious topics um, in ways that are respectful and that aren't about politics or personal beliefs, but that are about um, a shared belief that truth matters. One of the stories that we use with high school kids all the time is, or that we have been using recently, I should say, not all the time, that we have been using recently is actually around COVID-19. This story came out before schools were closed, and it was about a police department in Oregon 
who posted to their Facebook wall to, to asking their community to stop calling 911 um, because they were out of toilet paper. This is when people were starting to get uh, uh, be afraid of what was going to happen with the pandemic. And there were these great toilet paper shortages all over the place. And so that story is wonderful to work with older kids because uh, it's about a current event that triggers an emotion. There's some pieces to that story that are uh, emotionally tough to deal with. And I'm not going to give away the truth of that story in this um, podcast, Hugh, but the <laughs> truth is the truth is very surprising. Uh-huh. And so you can have conversations with kids about difficult topics, provided that you frame them in a way that's around a shared belief that the truth matters, because when we spread information, there can be deadly consequences to that. There is constant debate over what to do about fake news, which includes aspects of disinformation, misinformation, and propaganda. In the U.S., tackling this issue has become a major concern for K-12 educators who are in a strategic position to help school-aged children navigate their way through a complex and rapidly evolving digital landscape. Although Jennifer understands that addressing the issue should be a shared responsibility between policymakers, media organizations, and other stakeholders, she also believes that educators, especially school librarians, play a key role. What do you mean when you say that educators, especially librarians, are the kryptonite to fake news? Too often, we encounter educators who feel sort of helpless to do anything to affect this particular problem. They recognize that it's a real issue that's important, but it's not necessarily embedded in their curricula and it's certainly not tested. So therefore, sometimes educators struggle to see how they can use their specific roles to address it, even if they really, really want to. And so for Darren and I, it is really critical. One of the things that we wanted to do with the book was to empower educators to believe in themselves to the same degree that we do. Educators are trusted members of their communities. They have the skill sets to determine what's real and what isn't in information. They have the superpower of understanding how information fits into their curricula. If they have the will to do this work, they have the ways. And we feel like, if anything, it's educators' jobs to save the world right now in so much as this is a huge issue that's affecting every major problem that we're facing, whether we're talking about COVID-19 or climate change or violence, drug use, um, et cetera. Every major problem that we face as human beings has been affected by false narratives and misinformation. So whatever the content is, teachers can find a way to embed it. But I think librarians in particular are best positioned to do this work. Librarians have unique training in so much as librarians have always been conduits to information. Whether we're talking about helping kids find information in old school encyclopedia, or we're now having kids surf the internet to find information, like information evaluation and credibility sourcing has always been in the librarian's wheelhouse. So first of all, this they've already got this. This is already something that librarians do. But also because we talk so much when we're working with educators about the emotional connection that we all have to information, librarians also are in this unique position where they connect kids to story. They connect kids to the wider world, to truths about themselves, to strategies for navigating family life and friendships through stories and books. So they already understand the emotional power of a narrative. And so it's easy for them to be able to transfer that knowledge 
to information that we don't typically look at as being emotional, but that is deeply, deeply, deeply rooted in the emotional connections that we have to it. Plus, librarians are also in this unique position, school librarians, that is, of knowing every kid in the building, of knowing every teacher in the building, of having at least a base or cursory knowledge of the curricula of every department in the building, some of which, because they've collaborated with teachers in that area, they know some of them much, very, very in-depthly. And they also have this massive resource of the library that is often full of books and technology that can be used to help do this work. I think more and more states um, are thinking about how to develop standards or requirements around information literacy for students. Some states have very loosely outlined, just basically said, hey, teachers, we need you to do this. Other states are working to write curricula around this. Um, I think this is an opportunity for librarians to advocate for themselves and say, hey, I'm the person in this building who can help deliver this rather than adding one more thing to a teacher's plate, let me be the lead on this. That's not to say teachers don't have a role or wouldn't be doing this in their classrooms with kids. Of course they would, because in order for this to truly be effective, it has to be modeled in every content area. But the fact that states are looking at news and information literacy as something that should be added to curriculum standards, I, I think librarians should view that as an opportunity to lead and to advocate. Well, I wanted to mention something specific to Hawaii. In February 2020, the Hawaii Senate generated a concurrent resolution requesting that the Hawaii Department of Education convene an advisory committee to make recommendations to develop and implement a grade K-12 plan for incorporating digital citizenship and media literacy instruction in public schools, including charter schools and Hawaiian language immersion schools. The resolution was referred to the Senate Committees on Education and Technology. What advice would you offer to those involved in operationalizing this legislative measure? I'm really excited to hear about the steps that Hawaii is taking to make this a robust and meaningful part of student learning um, there on the islands. I would give a variety of advice. I'm going to start with a what not to do. It's tempting to look at that kind of requirement, find some online modules and sit kids in front of a computer. And once they've successfully passed those modules, boom, they're done. Their digital citizenship is done. They earn a badge or something and then it's all over. I think that might be an easy way to handle a requirement like this, but it's not an effective way. Any online work or modules that kids might complete need to be part of an over arching, robust, multi-grade program. We believe very strongly that this work has to begin in elementary school with things as uh, simple as simply modeling having a skeptical eye when we pull up media, for example, in the second grade classroom, when we pull up a video from NASA, modeling the idea of, hmm, I wonder who posted this. Let me check. Oh, that's NASA. So I know I can trust it to creating songs that kids sing along with in kindergarten about making sure you look for the author when you're reading something, etc. Making it part of the procedures that kids automatically go through in school at the younger elementary, the primary grade level is really important. So that that way, by the time kids get to the fourth and fifth grade and can start really analyzing information, it is part of the culture of what we do. It's not something new. It's not something isolated. So I think first and foremost, my first advice is to make sure that this is across all grade spans and that it becomes integrated content wise, that it, wide, that it's not um, an isolated activity that kids complete during a short period of time. The second thing I would recommend is that uh, I think it's critically important that mobile devices are included in information and literacy instruction and digital, digital citizenship instruction because 
Those are the devices kids use primarily when they are not in school. And because information and interactivity with others on a mobile device looks very, very different than what it does um, on a laptop or a desktop. So we have to make sure that we're doing the work of building bridges between those two access points for kids. Otherwise, when they're not in school, are they really going to be able to apply the skills that we've given them when they are in school? And in fact, just an aside, in the first book, In Fact Versus Fiction, we have an entire chapter um, that we call the face fake news self-assessment in which we present a number of news stories as though they are being displayed on a mobile device. And what we ask teachers to do there is not only to determine credibility, but also to see if they can even figure out what app is being used. And when we do that activity with teachers around uh, the country, it is amazing how uh, the, the disconnect between teachers and information literacy and the apps that are really being used by kids. And so that's a gap that any of these programs absolutely have to fill. And then I think the last thing I would say, although I could, we could do a whole podcast just with my advice on this, Hugh. Um, well, but the last that. <laughs> thing, okay, that'll be next time. <laughs> that's right. But the, the third thing I would say for this, um, for this moment is that mm -hmm. I think we have to use this as an opportunity to uh, marry or to connect information and news literacy with social and emotional learning. Social and emotional learning is something that schools are thinking far more apart. I like to say that it's currently like a buzzword, which means that it'll soon be a buzzkill, but that doesn't mean that it's not important. Um, connecting to how learning and uh, information affects our kids and us emotionally is important and giving kids tools to manage their emotional responses, not just information, but to conflicts in school and to trauma and to goodness, all the, you know, the outside influences that we're feeling right now, we have to, if we can give kids the tools to manage those emotional triggers, then they're better able to learn in general, but specifically when it comes to information analysis. So I think those three things are critically important. That's really good advice. Included in your book, which is packed with hands-on tools and resources that educators can use in the classroom, and you mentioned that it also includes a fake news self-assessment as well as protocols and tips to help students fact-check, evaluate, and determine the credibility of information. So I did want to throw that in. Um, we are reaching the end of the show, but I did want to ask you a couple other questions. Oh. In addition to this book, can you recommend to our listeners another book? And it doesn't have to be about fake news, but something that has inspired you in the work that you do? One book that I have found very informative uh, in terms of information literacy in a school setting is Michelle Littla's News Literacy, The Keys to Combating Fake News. And to be clear, I want to be clear for your listeners that this book is very high school centered. But what I think is really important about Michelle's book is that she does a really good job of modeling how we can tackle this issue of misinformation in the year 2020 without having to engage in arguments about political beliefs or uh, biases, et cetera, that we might have. You know, truth, facts are nonpartisan, and yet we have the ability to quickly turn them into political footballs that we toss back and forth. And the emotion in those arguments can make it impossible for us to really determine credibility. And so the lessons that Michelle includes in her book, I think are a really great example, particularly for high school teachers um, who are looking for ways to do this without you know, inflaming passions in a way that's not productive. Sounds like a great book. Thank you for sharing that. And do you have a favorite quote that keeps you motivated? Yes. You know, anybody who's ever heard me present knows that I always start with this quote. I think about it all the time. It's um, people lose their way when they lose their why. 
And uh, the person I've seen credited with that is Gail Hyatt. And I think about that all the time because I know it to be true, you know, especially in the field of education. I know people throughout my entire career who come to work every single day without fail. And I can't figure out why, because they seem to clearly hate children. And yet I also know that those people went into this business for the same reasons I did, that they want to change the world, that they somebody did something meaningful for them at, when they were a student and they want to give that back. People go into education because they want to be a, a, a force for good in the world. When people forget about that why, that's when they lose their way. So I try to use those words as a way of recalibrating myself. When I feel like I might be veering off course, I try to recalibrate to my why always. Why am I doing this? And that helps me make sure I don't lose my way. That's a great reminder for all of us. You definitely know your why. Where can our listeners go to find out more about you and the work that you're involved in across the nation? Well, the best place to connect with me is on Twitter. I'm very active there. My handle is Jennifer Lagarde, just my name, very easy. But you can also go to my website at librarygirl.net, where you'll find all sorts of contact information and more um, information about me and my work than you probably would ever want. Great. So Jennifer, thank you for being a guest on the Pacific Education Pulse podcast. Our listeners and I appreciate you sharing your time, personal experiences, and expertise, all for the purpose of improving teaching and learning. Once again, the book that we featured on this pep talk episode is Fact Versus Fiction, Teaching Critical Thinking Skills in the Age of Fake News. The authors are Jennifer Lagarde and Darren Hudgens. To our listeners out there, thank you for joining us. Remember, keep your finger on the pulse of education by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find this episode and other pep talk episodes on our website, pacificeducationpulse.com. Until next time, aloha. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. To download free pep talk podcasts, go to the Apple iTunes store or tap subscribe in your podcast player of choice. You can also visit us at pacificeducationpulse.com.